friends, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 85. It's found on page uh, 493 of your pew Bible. This morning we're beginning a new series on revival in the Bible with the hope that the new life of Christ that we celebrated together on Easter uh, would be present in an ongoing way. What might it mean for God to show up in our midst and truly transform us? How can the new life, the resurrection life of Christ be experienced and actualized in our midst? So as we look at Psalm 85 together today, we want to lay out just a few of of the key guiding principles about revival that will be important as this series goes along. So look with me, Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for our time together. Father, would you come speak a word of your peace to your people. And give us life deep in our hearts. And we can't muster up this revival, this restoration on our own. We need you to come and visit with us. So would you speak a word through my mouth, and would you open our hearts to hear what's from you. Be good to us. Give us what is good. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember the good old days. If only we could get back to the way that things were before. Make America great again. These messages... Uh, They they offer a power, a force. They resonate somewhere deeply because they tap into a longing. They reflect a a common reality that we see all around us. And that is that uh, our clothes fade. Easter lilies wear out. Energy decreases. Passion wears off. Romance can fizzle. Spiritually, we see uh, these same patterns. Churches rise and then they fall. Denominations emerge and decline. Our own personal spiritual vitality will erupt and then lie dormant. Trust in God turns back to trust in self. Our missional zeal grows half-hearted. Passion devolves into going through the motions. Things that were fresh become familiar. Memories fade and are forgotten. In all these ways, we're left with a longing for something more. And it's in that place that the author of Psalm 85 enters and says, Lord, 
revive us again. So as we approach Psalm 85, I want for us to see three things that we need to know about revival as we begin this series. The first is that revival intensifies how God ordinarily works. Revival intensifies how God ordinarily works. One of the key features of this psalm is the recognition that what God has done in the past shapes what's being asked for in the future. Revival is in line with how God has acted before and how he promises to act again. And so in the psalm, that's described as showing favor to the land. It's described as restoring the fortunes of his people, forgiving and covering their sin, withdrawing his wrath and anger. We think of some of the ordinary ways that we expect God to work. Normally, God convicts people of sin. Normally, God converts people from unbelief to trust in Christ. Normally, God assures us of our salvation in Christ. Normally, he transforms people into his image. And sometimes, he gives a deeper and more intense experience of these things. We know that God does certain things in salvation, and he's told us the normal means that he uses to bring them about. Things like hearing and reading and meditating on his word, praying alone and with our brothers and sisters, partaking of this table, gathering as uh, the redeemed community, following Jesus out into the world to live on mission. These are the ordinary ways uh, that God promises to work, and sometimes he deepens the experiential realities of these normal means of grace in our hearts. And so if revival is an intensification of God's ordinary ways of working, then we realize it's not about scheduling a revival meeting. It's not about putting up a tent and inviting an outside preacher. It's not about pursuing some extraordinary experience of God that we think might make us unique. So instead of looking for a new program or a new experience, the psalmist teaches us to remember the normal ways in which God works and then to long for a deeper and renewed experience. So think about it this way. Um, My wife, Michelle, is a really good cook, and I enjoy every time she makes dinner. But last weekend, my enjoyment was intensified because she made lamb with a rosemary glaze. She sautéed cabbage in bacon grease. She roasted fresh green beans and carrots with olive oil, and it came together, and it was phenomenal. She used normal methods of making dinner, and yet the experience was deeper. The flavors were fuller. The culinary delight more intense. And we didn't have to renovate our kitchen or buy new appliances to make that happen, but we enjoyed normal dinner in a more intense way. Now, unfortunately, that's not what we eat for dinner each and every night. Uh, And revival isn't what we experience as God's people all the time. So what about on a Tuesday night? Things are busy. Kids are throwing up and all you can manage to do is get spaghetti on the table. What about a Saturday morning when the to-do list is longer than it was when the week began and there's no relief in sight? What about those months where you give barely a thought to your sin and the gospel has seemingly no impact in your heart? What then? One of the things that the psalm teaches us is to look back, to remember how God has worked before. 
And so I wonder if there's somewhere that you can look back on and say, yes, God was so present, so near, so clearly at work in or around me. Those days when you couldn't wait to get out of bed to see what he had for you in his word. Those Sundays where the tears of joy won't stop flowing because the gospel is being preached straight to your soul. Those seasons of answers to prayer, one after another more than you'd even asked for. And times of getting to celebrate person after person coming to know Jesus. Looking back in these ways helps us to look forward in a way that expects God to act once again. And so we're meant to anticipate that revival would confirm God's ordinary ways of working, but would reveal them, would demonstrate them in more intensified ways. And so forgiveness isn't just understood, but experienced. God's favor is more than a concept. It becomes the joy of our hearts. The restoration and building up of God's church isn't just aspirational, but actualized. And so, revival intensifies God's normal ways of working. And secondly, it brings satisfaction to our souls. Revival satisfies our souls. It taps into our need to experience what we already possess. We've seen that it's possible to look back, remember God working in intensified ways, but we also recognize that's not always our experience. Often, other things, things like the security of money, the dopamine rush that comes from looking at porn, the fear of failure at work, the anxiety of never-ending to-do lists, that delight of a new boyfriend or girlfriend, often these things feel more real to us than the spiritual realities that are meant to impact our hearts. When those things crowd out our experience of God, we need a new sense of God's reality in a way that can meet our fear, our anxiety, our insecurity, our boredom. And so maybe you've never known God's reality in that way, or maybe you're here this morning needing a renewed experience of it. But either way, Psalm 85 invites us to ask God for those things with three specific images. Joy, peace, and glory. And it reminds us that his reviving work is ultimately what satisfies our souls. So firstly, joy. As the psalmist says, if God revives us again, it will lead to his people rejoicing in him. The joy of Christ brings a sweet aroma, a sweet taste to our souls. When we experience that, Jesus becomes so real that it actually changes how we live. The joy of Christ reorders our love. It reorders what delights us. And so I'm reminded of that enjoyment of barbecue and fried pork chops and pot roast and macaroni and cheese and collard greens and cornbread from Carver's Country Kitchen in Atlanta. (laughs) And I'm reminded uh, that it makes me not want to go back to eating that stuff here because I haven't found it good anywhere. Uh, Unfortunately, if you have any recommendations, let me know. But in the same way, okay, the enjoyment of Christ makes us not want to go back to those things that dull our senses, that lead us astray. Uh, Those hours of binging on Netflix, 
the hours of online shopping, the, 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 the dabbling in pornography. The enjoyment of Christ makes us not want to go back to tearing other people down with our criticism, our gossip, and our sarcasm. The enjoyment of Christ makes us not want to go back to puffing our chests out, to posturing with, with this endless search for the approval of others. The joy of Christ is too sweet for all of that. Second image in the psalm is that of peace. Peace is that word that says, it is well with my soul. Peace means my status is secure, that God's not angry anymore and my soul is at rest. Peace means the actual heart experience of resting on Christ and knowing that it is well. A few weeks ago, I was driving home at the end of the day, and it just wasn't well with my soul. I felt heavy, I felt weighed down by the demands of life. You know the feeling. And I was stuck in my head, just rehashing my shortcomings, my limitations, my inability to fix things as I would want to. And as I stop at a red light, and I'm just kind of running over the list of, of failures and things that weren't quite right in my head, I, I looked up, and there was a rainbow, a sign of God's peace, a permanent reminder of his favor for his people. And like that, it was well with my soul. The recognition that God has put away his anger, made a way for people to come to him through his son Jesus was enough for that moment. His peace satisfies and gives rest to our souls. The third image in the passage is that of glory. For the Israelites, glory was the sign that God was especially present. It was the demonstration that God is here. It was the reminder that together we experience Him and are transformed by His presence in our midst. We know the experience of a room changing when someone enters. Think of a kindergarten classroom and the kids are clamoring about, but as soon as the teacher enters, things get quiet. People become still. Think of of children playing, and then as soon as dad walks in the door at the end of a long day from work, run to him, grab his legs. Things change when he walks in the door. Think about Christians getting kind of weirdly giggly and excited when a famous preacher walks in, and everybody else wonders what we're so excited about. Think about people standing at attention with respect when the president enters the room. Friends, how might things be different if we knew that God was here, that God was walking in that door to be with us. I think a kind of gospel party might break out, a party of worship and reverence, fun and excitement, resolved conflicts, less boasting, more awe, less obsession with comparing ourselves to one another, more sacrificial service for the good of others because our King is here and His glory satisfies Revival entails the satisfaction of our souls that come from knowing His joy, His peace, and His glory. But revival comes as those things get multiplied and shared amongst God's people. Whether in a small group, a church, a city, a denomination, revival comes uh, when our souls are collectively satisfied in Him. And so, revival points us forward to a taste of what is to come. The third and final point is that revival helps us to taste what's coming. 
The final four verses of the psalm are, are a sort of vision. A vision of what it will look like when revival comes for good. And they're a pointer to us of what God will do in the future. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The promises, the actions of God converge and consummate. Verse 11, faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Heaven and earth meet. It's God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The full fruits of God's saving work are here. All is set right. Now this vision isn't one of domination by our particular political party. It's not one of of a nationalistic economic prosperity. It's not one that comes about by military victory. No, it's the coming of God in the fullness of his kingdom so that all are at rest and God walks freely amongst his people. So when God intensifies his ordinary ways of working, when he satisfies our souls with joy, with peace, with glory, we get a foretaste of heaven. But that means that even as we taste revival, we wait for the entree. We wait for the full portion. Throughout the scriptures, throughout the history of the church, throughout our own lives, we see cycles. Cycles of of decline and then revival. Stagnation and then growth. But the recognition of that shouldn't leave us in despair. It doesn't leave us hopeless, but it stokes our desires. It whets our appetites. It fans the flame for us to want more. More tastes of what is surely to come. I don't think I've ever really seen or or been a part of any large-scale revival, but as I think about tastes of revival, tastes of what is to come, my mind goes back to to maybe an unexpected place, but back to to college, back to my fraternity. And so join a fraternity that um, maybe didn't have the greatest reputation on campus, um, I remember being in the, the, the bus driving around campus one day and we passed the, the house that I lived in and these people start talking like, you know about those guys? Like, stay away from there. Don't even walk on the sidewalk in front of their house. So about 10 years before I got to school, there was a freshman in the fraternity and uh, he was largely responsible for part of this reputation, a bit of a wild man. And so two semesters in, he gets himself suspended from school, goes back home. And while he's home... Uh, he meets Jesus in a life-changing way. And so he puts in his two semesters of probation, comes back to school, back to the fraternity as a man on a mission, a man telling everybody about Jesus. And over his remaining years, saw several men uh, come to know Christ and really laid the foundation for uh, a gospel presence in this fraternity that would last for years to come. So seemingly every year, one or two men would come to Christ. And uh, by the time I got there, there was a half dozen or so men who, who knew Christ within the fraternity. And now one of the, the clear markers of who belonged to um, what was known as the God Squad was uh, this night that came close to the end of each school year. It was known as Brothers Night In. And without giving the sordid details, we'll just say that it was a kind of celebration of sin in as many forms as possible. Um, so over the years, a few of the Christian guys kind of developed an, an alternate activity, a kind of brother's night out. 
And so when I was a freshman, a uh, half dozen or so of us load up, go out to dinner, go to a movie, just kill some time, and, and then head back to the house uh, after the festivities had wound down. Nothing particularly special about that night, but then I, I think about fast-forwarding to my senior year. And this same night uh, approaches, and a few of us are making plans for what um, our alternate activity will be that night. And so we had settled on this place a little bit outside of the city, and there was this really peaceful overlook uh, alongside the Chattahoochee River. And we thought it would be a great place to just go sit, spend an evening reminiscing uh, about our experiences in college Uh, sharing a peaceful night together. So as word got around, we realized that we were going to have far more uh, than simply six people with us. And when it was all said and done, upwards of of 20 men opted for the Brothers' Night Out instead of Brothers' Night In. And we realized as we looked around this group that, that many had come to Christ just in the last year. And so uh, within this group spread from, from freshmen to seniors, there was tension. Uh, there was people who uh, had brokenness in their relationships with one, another, one another over the years uh, of college. So we weren't entirely sure how this night was going to go. And so there we sit. The river rushes by. The night is clear. The stars are bright. Sitting in a circle and unplanned, unprompted. People begin to confess how they've hurt one another through the years. People begin to, to ask for and to extend forgiveness. People begin to pray for one another and for the future of the gospel presence in this fraternity. Friends, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was there with us that night. What began as simply an escape, a night out, had turned in to a taste of his presence, a taste of joy and peace and glory. So that night, as we thought Uh, about what God had done in our fraternity as we considered this small taste of revival and we asked for more. It it was clear to us. Revival doesn't come because we're good. It comes because he's good. And so our hope for revival comes in clinging to the promise of verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. We don't always know how or when, or where, but he'll give what is good. And friends, we know that he'll give what's good because he's already given what is best. God took the best that he had to offer, his son Jesus, and sent him into the heart of a world that desperately needed revival. Jesus gave the best that he had to offer, poured himself out, going Uh, to an innocent man's death so that we might receive the best that God has for us. And so through the ages, God has seen fit to pour out joy and peace and glory, to revive dead hearts, to breathe new life into needy and sleepy hearts. And as he does that, Jesus becomes more and more central in our hearts, our minds, our church, our world. And as he does that, we see God intensifying the ways that he ordinarily works. We experience his satisfaction in our souls. And friends, we get a taste of what is to come. So Lord, revive us again. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we're deeply aware that these are things that we can't muster up in our own strength. 
And so we ask you to speak a word of peace to us. Give us a glimpse of glory. Revive us again. Do you awake our slumbering hearts from the spiritual sleep that so often plagues us? Would you come and arise in this place so that your presence, your glory would be visible for all of the world to see? And we ask this, you would do all of this in and through your son who you gave on our behalf. We pray in his name. Amen.